Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On this week's segment, Matt Bromley takes us through some living off the land techniques in his segment, The Adversary Toolbox. After that, we sit down and have a chat with Tyler Shields, an experienced cybersecurity veteran, entrepreneur, and angel investor. Hey everyone, this is Matt from Lima Charlie, and welcome to the Adversary Toolbox. In this segment, we'll spend a few minutes chatting about a particular adversary tool or tactic. Our goal, as always, is to bring light to the different TTPs that our adversaries use so that as defenders, we can be on the lookout and aware of how tools can be used or abused within our environments. In the next few episodes, we're going to look at native Windows functionalities and executables that are abused by adversaries to perform a myriad of tasks or achieve a myriad of objectives. These types of executables which are native to the operating system, are part of what's known as a living off the land strategy. These executables are also known as living off the land binaries, sometimes shorthanded as LOL bins. These tools are designed with specific legitimate operating system functionalities, but are favored by adversaries as they oftentimes avoid detection. Our first episode will focus on Microsoft Background Intelligence Transfer Service or BITS jobs. This is a native component of the Windows operating system. Bits jobs provide a method of transferring files between a client and a server with minimal system resource utilization. Bits jobs allow for the downloading of files or updates in the background without impacting other network operations, and jobs can be paused, resumed, canceled, and will automatically pick up where left off if interrupted. Believe it or not, Bits jobs are utilized by Windows Update and the Microsoft Store, for example, so you'll often see these types of transfers happening all the time. There is a, also a native Windows executable called bitsadmin or bitsadmin.exe, which is the command line tool used to manage bits jobs. Bits jobs allow for bitsadmin, I should say, allows for the creation, enumeration, and manipulation of bits jobs, automation of tasks, and ensure that these transfers are carried out securely and efficiently. The execution of bitsadmin, therefore, is not inherently malicious, and we cannot issue a blanket detection for it. This inherent usage is what allows adversaries to potentially evade detection by misusing this binary, hence the phrase living off the land. Unfortunately, the use of this tool and its capabilities are well known amongst adversaries. From multiple APT groups to financially motivated and ransomware threat actors, BitsJobs has been used for many years now to download additional tools, launch malicious processes, exfiltrate data, and has even been seen to be used to establish and maintain persistence. For example, U-Boat Rat, a remote access Trojan profiled by Unit 42 in 2017, found that the slash set notify CMD line or set notify command line option executes a program whenever a job is finished or is in error. This option will survive a reboot, ensuring that the adversary maintains remote and persistent access. Detection of malicious bits jobs often requires full command line telemetry, as it's the options passed to bits admin that are critical for determining if the job is malicious. Now, within the Lima Charlie platform, we recommend focusing on process creation events that will help increase detection fidelity. Our users know we also integrate with Sigma, which have detections for bits admin usage in place, including some potential whitelisting and things to increase detection fidelity. You can also utilize timeline analysis and temporal proximity to ensure that files downloaded, which will register as new creation events, will be malicious or not and can be used for some additional detection steps. Last but not least, there is also a bits client in Windows event log that can contain bits transfer events, 
including associated URLs, and can be used to filter out good versus known bad. These logs are also streamed to the Lima Charlie platform if you'd like, or can be pulled ad hoc using a tool like Velociraptor. All right, that's it for this episode of the Adversary Toolbox. Join me next time. We're going to continue our exploration of adversarial tactics and techniques and things we can do to better prepare our detections for them. Next up, my conversation with Tyler Shields. And apologies for the sound quality on my side. I had a misconfiguration during the recording. Thanks for being with us on the show today. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for having me. Uh, Please introduce yourself and uh, tell us what you do. Yeah, my name is Tyler Shields. I uh, do a number of things from fractional CMO to uh, angel investor and run uh, an angel investment fund. And uh, yeah, I also write for a periodical called The Cyber Why. I was checking out your LinkedIn and I noted that you went to the University of Rochester. Uh, I've met a lot of people in cyber from Rochester, New York. Is there an obvious reason this area is a hub of activity or is it just a statistical anomaly? Yeah, you know, I wish I had a really good answer for you on that one. I know the Rochester Institute of Technology School is phenomenal. That's where I, where I did my undergrad. Um, really well known, certainly in New England, for computer science, IT, cybersecurity. Now there's a whole school dedicated to cybersecurity. So I think um, that has obviously that that uh, educational system has a lot to do with uh, generating some, some good high-quality um, capabilities, technical capabilities coming out of that area. And I don't know, maybe it's just because it's cold for like eight months a year and so much <laughs> snow, we don't do anything but drink and use computers. I don't know. There you go. Yeah, I've heard the buffalo wings are very good, too. They are good. That's where I was born. I'm a buffalo native, so let's go Bills. Yeah. Uh, It's a really crazy time right now. Uh, Just a year ago, there was not enough engineering talent to fill roles. Uh, Companies were getting crazy valuations, and now we're seeing some of the biggest companies in tech making huge cuts to store up for what is coming. How did we get here? Yeah, you know, I think... There's lots of ways that we could have gotten here, and a lot of things did play into that, right? An over-exuberance of expectation of returns. I think the primary driving factor, if you look at it from a macroeconomic uh, level, and I'm not sure how, how nerdy you want me to get uh, with regards to like macroeconomic impact, but when, you know, when the nominal Fed rate is, uh, the interest rate is essentially zero or near zero, money is free, right? Resources, uh, the cost of capital becomes free or very close to free, which makes hyperscaling and blitzscaling companies the right thing to do. Literally, it doesn't matter the market. It doesn't matter anything else. If, if resources are infinitely free, you should blitz scale your company and try to capture as much of the market as possible. When the Fed turned that and really kind of took uh, interest rates back up to where they should be in the first place and money became no longer free, it makes you run companies to a profitable and more efficient approach. And so what's happening is is people overinvested, overbuilt their companies, over, uh, you know, got too much funding, then they really needed to operate the businesses. And it became so far out of whack that when the Fed made the correction that they made, the valuations had to be cut. They had to be slashed by sometimes as high as 70% for some companies. And some companies have gone out of business simply because mm-hmm. of the tightening of the access to capital. Yeah, there's a Warren Buffett quote I love where he says, uh, when the economy gets tough and the tide goes out, you can see you swimming with shorts on or not. <laughs> yes, yes. Something and there's to... a lot of a lot of high tech startups right now that are swimming without shorts on, and it's it's becoming clear. And that's why the layoffs have to occur. That's why the the correction is occurring right now to bring everything back into a, a normal stage of reality. And then you'll see growth come back. And mm-hmm. the startups that are being born right now are going to be the next massive crop of of big, very well-created, efficient, healthy startups. Right.
You've been working in cybersecurity for approximately 25 years. Have you ever seen such a big turn in the market? Is there lessons you learned from previous downturns that you could share with young founders or even people trying to navigate the job market right now? Yeah, I lived through the dot-com explosion in the late 90s. So I moved to um, Silicon Valley when I was 22 years old and got a job at a startup employee 85. Um, and it, it, if you look, actually, I found out recently I was looking at the interest rates and it was a similar actual situation from a macroeconomic standpoint that caused the, the dot-com bust as well. But um, yeah, I went out there at 22, um, you know, joined a company employee 85 at a, at a startup out there. We took it to 1500 employees, IPO'd it two years later, rags to riches story, riches to rag story. I lost every <laughs> single penny on that. Right. And it's a very similar, when you look at the the causes of it, the over exuberance, the, uh, the free access to capital, that's literally what ends up happening. And I think this will end no different. And we will rise from the ashes and the Phoenix that is high tech within the United States of America will rise from the ashes and it'll take off. And like I said, I think Look at the companies that were born out of that crop. Like Google came out of that mm-hmm. post uh, post um, uh, dot com crash, right? Uh, Amazon nearly went bankrupt, yet came out of that as the Amazon that we have with trillions of dollars of value between these companies. Um, so I see that happening now. If we fast forward twenty years um, from today, there will be companies being born today that become those next macro monsters. You're an angel investor. Given the economic reality right now, what are the key signals that you look for in a company that indicate it's a good investment? Yeah, I do my because I'm an angel investor and I'm so early. It's um, it's a little less impactful to me. The later the stage the investments are, the more impactful that the the ability to access capital becomes important, or the free capital issue becomes important. When you're super early like me, your your pennies on the dollar, your your investments are relatively small, but you're getting a reasonable chunk of a very high risk, very high mm-hmm. reward investment. And so, um, you know, not a lot has changed for me, except for maybe valuations have cut a little bit and they've come down to a little bit more of a a normal reality and they're a little bit less competitive with the number of uh, investors looking to get in. I don't usually lead uh, investments. I come alongside a venture capital partner who leads the seed and I come in as a strategic investor who they want to have either involved on their board or involved with it as an advisor to the business. And I bring my LPs in who are all uh, the vast majority of which are all cybersecurity experts, infrastructure experts, app dev experts, and they can they can bring their expertise to bear on the deals that we get involved with. Um, and so I didn't I haven't seen much change other than being a little bit pickier ourselves. Um, as we wait for a few more exits to occur to free up some liquid capital to do the next next cohort of investments. Related to this, I read an article you wrote titled uh, Welcome to Zombie Cornland. Can you explain <laughs> what a zombie company is to anybody? Yeah, that for sure. For sure. The traditional um, concept of a zombie company is a company that doesn't make enough money to essentially service their debts. So they have so much debts that they can't pay off their debts. They may have $100 million in the bank, but if they can't pay off their debts, they're going to go bankrupt eventually, right? And they're essentially the walking dead. They're zombies. Um, and so I was making a pithy comment with that um, uh, article saying that there are lots of zombies that now exist in high tech because, you know, the the, the free capital has disappeared. Uh, valuations have been now cut in half and they're they're they put out all the stock at a billion dollar, $2 billion of valuation. And now their valuation is 400 million. And to get back to that massive valuation might take years. Well, they may not be able to ever get back to that valuation without having to raise another round, which is going to be at a lower rate 
than the previous one, which causes all sorts of, of structural issues within the business. And so it was jokingly, I call them zombie zombie companies, or in our case, because they were former unicorns, zombie corn companies, right? <laughs> and so that's the joke. And what I did was I wrote an article that took, if you've ever seen the movie Zombieland, it's um it's a it's a post apocalyptic movie uh, where the main the main character uh, Woody Harrelson and I forget the other actor's name another very famous actor uh, go around trying to live in this world full of zombies and every once in a while they pop up a rule on the screen know your exits right and then they show them running away from a zombie knowing where their exit is so that they can right. survive so I took a bunch of the rules of Zombieland and applied it to how to survive as a zombie corn company um, and so yeah I, I thought it was pretty fun it actually. The Cyber Y, which is where I released it in, really saw a huge uplift on the back of that article. So it was a pretty popular piece. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty fun. That's why I wanted to ask about it. Another one of the articles you wrote uh, is called The Fallacy of PLG, where you uh, declare yeah. your love-hate relationship with product-led <laughs> approach. Uh, given that Lima Charlie is very much a product-led company, I'd love to hear more about this. What is it that you love? And more interesting to me, what is it that you hate? Yeah, for sure. So to be abundantly clear, I love PLG conceptually. Like PLG is an awesome awesome way to build a go-to-market engine around um, uh, a product and around around a business because it, it's a fast – the idea of product-led growth is that it's a fast feedback mechanism to get to market quicker, right? So your, pro your people are already in the product doing things and they're able to self-service and swipe credit cards and upgrade and move into cross-sells and things like that. That's super fast feedback loop. And if you can analyze all that data, you can really get a lot of feedback on how to build a business in the right way. So I love PLG. So, uh, you know, I think everybody thinks I'm a PLG hater. I'm not. But the reality is when you look at the businesses that exist in the markets that I primarily play, primarily play in, specifically cybersecurity, they don't lend themselves well to PLG. Even if you have a product that's built from the ground up like that, right, with a, with a swipe the credit card, cross-sell, upsell model, most of the buyers in um, in uh, uh, cybersecurity, for example, um, are buying bigger ticket items. They're taking longer sales cycles. Um, you know, they're they're looking for. Um, you know, uh, they're they're the, if you just even think about the total number of people that you're going to be able to get into a product in a cybersecurity product, if you're targeting cybersecurity users, that number is small compared to say the number of developers or the number of consumers in the world. PLG works best when you have massive numbers of people because you might get a 1, 2, or 4% conversion rate of those people to buy. But when you think about the number of cybersecurity people that exist in the world, there's just not enough of them to dictate a product-like growth be largely successful in cybersecurity. And if we think of any PLG companies that have been successful in cyber, the first one that everybody always throws at me and they say, SNCC, uh, sneak or SNCC, they did a great job of PLG. I'm like, yeah, they totally did. You're absolutely right because they're an AppSec company. And they're like, well, still a cybersecurity company. I'm like, yeah, but the PLG motion they built targets developers. Right. Targets the 1,000x number of people that compare to an individual cybersecurity person. And then they use that to break open companies and convert it over. So PLG has to be properly designed. It has to fit the market, the people, the product. The, even the founders have to be the right founders. There's literally a number of things that have to be perfect for PLG to work. And in general, cybersecurity is not, doesn't fit that in a general sense. Right. And I think because it becomes known as this great way to go to market with low overhead that people try and, you know, put the square peg in the round hole. Right. 
in uh, yeah, I totally yeah, see and that. and everybody's like, hey, you know, it worked for insert B two C company here. We got to do the same thing in in cyber. Well, no, you don't. It's not going to work for you. And I, there are a small number of them, I promise you, that I'm going to be wrong on that go on to be massively successful, huge businesses because they were that perfect fit. But if you were to look at the generalized case of PLG and cyber, it doesn't work. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, Lima Charlie targets sort of developers and engineers. So I feel better with your you. Might be the one, you might be the one massive <laughs> one. I hope you are. I hope you are. I, I'm pretty sure we are. But time All right. Time. I love right. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you stated that API security will be one of the most important security technologies in the next five years. Uh, can you tell me what's behind that line of thinking? 100%. I think it's already there. Um, uh, I think you can look at like no-name security, salt security, and some of the growth rates of these API set companies, and you'll realize why. But if I were to back out the investment thesis there, I've been saying it for a handful of years now, let's call it three plus years, that I think API sec is going to be a massive market. Um, and it fundamentally sits on uh, technology shifts that have occurred, in particular the movement to cloud, right? So now everything we do is SaaS, cloud, API derived. You have API access into literally everything you do, all sorts of data, metadata, analyzed data that you didn't have before the shift to cloud. Um, couple that with what I call um, the atomization of the application, which is another piece I wrote, where what used to be one app in a data center that a business may run, we take that app, we put it in a container, we shove it in the cloud. Okay, that's fine. But then we quickly realized that that didn't add any capability to scale. So we break that app into 50 different microservices or micro apps that exist in the cloud instances. And how do all of these apps communicate, right? They all communicate via APIs. So what you're seeing is a natural exponential growth rate of APIs as we move applications into the cloud. So between the shift to cloud, everything being API accessible, and the atomization of the application, the application is breaking down to the atomic level or the function level, APIs are going to grow massively. And with that, security has to figure out how to secure them. Therefore, I think API sec is going to be a massive market. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the numbers make sense, right? Any thoughts of the impact of AI and cybersecurity? Everybody's talking about chat GPT, yeah. but I mean, sort of above and beyond that, both red and blue team, are, are we heading towards an arms race? What's going to happen there? This is one of the areas I'm not fully baked on. Uh, I'm literally doing research, research right now, talking to experts in the AI field. I have a meeting set up with another AI expert next week. You know, immediately when we're thinking of cyber in AI, I think AI is going to be a massive, it's a massive fundamental tectonic plate shift that's occurring in technology at a broad sense. But then the question becomes, how does cyber adapt, right? Just like when we had a cloud shift, um, when we had uh, atomic um, applications being atomized, how does cyber adapt to that, right? And that's where you put your investment dollars. That's where you build businesses. That's where new ideas and innovations will occur. AI is the same same way. I firmly believe it's a tectonic shift. But the question becomes, how do we view security in AI or of AI? And, and how is that going to impact? How can security work in those in those situations? So I think the, the low-hanging fruit is security products that we have today will take AI learning algorithms and inject it into what they do so that they're smarter so that they'll look at the look at the data sets they have in a smarter way that's kind of the low-hanging fruit um you the other low-hanging fruit and i don't know how low it is but 
the concept of taking the rote automation type things like a day-to-day sock analyst, 80% of what they do is the same stuff every day, day in and out, triaging the same things, putting that into a learning module of some sort to make the decisions automated, right? That's another low-hanging fruit. And those things I think will come to bear in the next few years, three to five years. Then the other question is, instead of thinking of security using AI, what is the security of AI? So if I am a a company that's doing AI data analytics on flight paths for the FAA, what is, how do I secure my learning modules, my AI itself? And that one's pretty exciting to me because there's some interesting offensive security research where researchers are able to pull models out by hitting the API with enough queries to actually completely recreate and steal the IP of the target model. Things like that, right? Manipulative attacks, poison attacks, that's super interesting to me how because now you're talking a whole new security market that never existed until today Hmm, that's fascinating i Um, tend to live a few years in the future sometimes too far in the future so who knows this might be a 10-year prediction i don't know (laughs) right yeah i think that in the near term even just augmentation i see colleagues and people playing around with it helping to write rules helping to analyze rules and stuff like that so it's it's already making an impact on on security just not in a scalable commercial way yet 100%. 100%. That's that low-hanging fruit, that that kind of automated, uh, rote stuff, just getting that in an automated way. And I love it because everybody's always like, well, isn't that going to take jobs of, of first-level SOC people or, or you know, the people that do that that type of work? And I'm like, yeah, it will. But those people are now freed up to become a higher-order level mm-hmm. of impact on cybersecurity. We have been saying for decades that we have millions of openings in cybersecurity. We'll never have enough people in cybersecurity. So why are we worried about losing jobs to automation? This is the last one I got for you, and it's one I ask of every guest on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? i kind of already gone through some of them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think AI is going to be the biggest impact in the next decade. Um, you know, I, I, I'm actually partially right, partially the way through in the cyber why of writing a piece specifically on the future impacts of AI on uh, business in general, but certainly on cyber. Um, and I think there's certain trends that have occurred that you can say are the pivotal pivotal moments of the last 50 years. Um, invention of Silicon, Silicon Valley, internet, invention of internet, invention of mobile, right? And then um, invention of AI, I think, is that next massive frontier. Now, what that really means, I'm not entirely sure yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it manifests itself, but you're already starting to see things like AI back driving for the self-driving cars. You're starting to see um, uh, chat GPT start to come up and, and pass the Turing test. I mean, passing the Turing test, for those of you that don't know, the Turing test is a test that um, basically, if you can confuse a human, if you can, if a computer can convince a human that they're that they're not a computer, that they're a human as well, that's called passing the Turing test in an automated way. And until very recently, that never could happen. Like a computer would talk to you, you'd, you could instantly figure out whether it was a computer or not. Or you could ask them a question that would right. kind of throw it in a loop. Yeah, that would that would figure it out very quickly. ChatGPT passes the Turing test. Like mm-hmm. that's a monumental important impact on computer science in a general sense. Um, and I think we're going to see over the next decade the impacts of that that becoming self-learning, self-training, and God forbid we go the William Gibson novel and let it get sentient. You know, yeah. that's possible. Yeah. 
I do love how you went internet mobile and then AI because me and my partner were talking recently about how this feels like we're sort of flatlined after mobile. And it's kind of felt like nothing exciting has happened where there was a lot of progress before and it felt like we plateaued. And this definitely feels like a new, a whole new plane of, of playing field is opening up. Yeah, well, I'll take you back to, you know, the dot-com bust, right? Back to your original question about the dot-com bust. It feels identical to that. When the dot-com busted in 2001, 2002 timeframe, I left Silicon Valley and moved out to North Carolina where I now live. And there there was a, almost a lost decade between then and 2007 or so, 2008, where mobile became the next big push, right? And there was just yeah. this valley of who knows. And I feel like that crush is right now where now those new inventions, AI, and it might take six, eight years till it becomes mm -hmm. like super, super valuable like mobile did. But mm -hmm. we're in that valley right now. And the question is yeah. whether that valley is two years, three years, 10 years, 20 years. I think yeah. it's probably five years. And then you're going to see these massive impacts from AI. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, Tyler. This is super fun. Thanks for having me, Chris. I enjoyed it. Cheers. And that concludes another episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We've been having a lot of fun putting this show together and would love to hear from you. Any criticisms, suggestions, or high fives can be sent to defenders at limacharlie.io. I would also like to thank you for listening in. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or a review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.